First Peter chapter 3. We're going through this study of the book of First Peter and what a, what a study it's been for me. What a challenge and a help. It's a book that is about hope. We get that from chapter 1 and verse 13. The very first imperative command given to us in the book is about being sober and hope. Hope being sober referring to your, your spiritual uh, aspect of being, being sober-minded. Be serious about what God is serious about and hope to the end for the grace. So we've entitled the series Encouragement Through God's Enabling because God wants you to be filled with hope. And hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. It is confidence in God. We have many promises from God that we can take confidence in Him and be filled with hope. And there's not a situation in your life where you cannot have hope. And so one of the things Peter does is he takes us through a myriad of circumstances that will show us no matter what you face, you can have hope and confidence in God. Truth is, I don't have much hope in our media outlets today. Don't have much hope in our politicians, that's for sure. And here we are in a 2024 election cycle year, and we can't put hope in that. Now, we have responsibility in that arena, but that's not where our hope lies. We don't have hope in the economy. You know, we, we may benefit, we may not benefit from it as it changes, but that's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in God. Well, we saw two weeks ago, we had revival meeting last Sunday with Dr. Jim through Thursday, but the previous Sunday we looked at the end of chapter two where he was talking about having hope even when you're dealt um, a low blow, when you've been slighted, when you've been hurt, when somebody has cheated you. And we, we looked at those and then uh, the week before and then last week even, this matter of authority. He dealt with servants submitting to their masters. He talked about governmental authorities. He doesn't say that we are to submit because they're right. He says, submit because that is right. And then he gives us the illustration in verse number 21 of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 21, of Jesus who submitted. In fact, one of the best passages of Jesus Christ leaving heaven to come here for us is Philippians 2 where it says, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so Paul says, let that same mind that Jesus had be in you. And Jesus, we're told here, is our example, leaving us an example, chapter 2, verse 21, to follow his steps. And it says that when he was treated wrongly, he didn't respond in a wrong way. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten back. He didn't respond and retaliate he submitted. Why? Because this submission is not a weakness, but it's a confidence in the God who is in complete and total control. Amen. Well, we pick up our reading now in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise. Because of what Jesus has done and how he has submitted, he submitted to Pontius Pilate. Remember that? He was arrested, tried wrongly accused of blasphemy, everything that Jesus was, uh, was being tried for was on 
wrong false grounds, and yet Jesus responded sweetly submissive. Likewise, Peter says, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any, that is any husband, obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. The word conversation is not referring to speech. It's an old English word that refers to lifestyle of the wives. Verse 2. While they behold your chaste lifestyle or conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning that is the wife. Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. So he gives an Old Testament illustration. Verse 6, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are. As long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Verse 7, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that is, your wife, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Wow, what a passage, seven verses. Well, seven verses that will never be given this way in our corrupt culture, that's for sure. My temptation is, let's save this for Sunday night or Wednesday night. My temptation is, let's just pass off of this and go on to something else. But that's not a lot of trust in God and His Word to do something like that. And I don't change when I decide, when I know the mind of the Lord that I'm to preach through this book and we need to be preached to a book, given a book and go verse by verse and precept by precept, then I have to trust the Lord that he knows when it's going to happen, when we're going to get to it and who's going to be in the congregation and regardless of what's happening in society around about us. Because this is not a club that we're trying to win people to. I'm not a politician running for any position needing your votes. This is a church where Christ is the head. This authority that we have is the word of God and we put our faith and trust in God and his word and thus saith the Lord is the message. We're not going to add anything to it. We're not going to take anything from it. When it doesn't line up with us, it's not the book that's broke, it's us. And so this is a mirror. We look into it. God can help us, change us, and give us meaning and purpose in living. So this morning, I want us to look at, in context of the entire book of Peter, it's a book about hope. So I want to preach this morning on hope beyond I do. Hope beyond I do. Or marriage 
according to God. Now he's going to talk about marriage here. This is ultimately not what I thought it would be and that is not entirely a passage that's going to have, help us have a happy marriage, though it will. But this is rather the context, I believe, is to help us have a happy, healthy relationship with God. And the way in which we go about that will cause us to have a more effective and happier and satisfied relationship here. Remember, he dealt with relationships before. A slave to its master, servants to master, an employer uh, to um, the uh, employee to the employer, a, uh, a, a, a citizen to the governmental authorities, and now he's moving to the family realm. See, the fact that a man and woman are both saved, they're believers in God, is no guarantee that the marriage will succeed. Marriage is something that we have to work at. The success of a marriage is not automatic. When one marriage partner is a Christian and the other is not, it makes it extremely difficult and challenging because it was God's idea for marriage. It is God who's put the recipe for marriage together. And Peter addresses this section of his letter to Christian wives who have unsaved husbands. She's, he's telling the wives how to win your spouse to the Lord by a way in which you live. And then he adds in a very important instruction to the husband. Now, no matter your marital status, you can learn from Peter the essentials for a happy, healthy holy, successful marriage. And again, this is not ultimately as much about marriage as it is how we're to uh, conduct ourselves within these given relationships so that we can ultimately have the right relationship with Him. Twice in this pa passage, these verses, Peter reminded Christian wives that they're to be submissive to their husbands. Well, that's definitely not popular today. Even the, the, the most wholesome, if there is such a thing, of TV shows, they're going to leave out, if they have a marriage ceremony, to obey, to submit. But God put it in there. And those who leave it out, they're still not finding the satisfaction and the success of their marriage as they should. And part of it is because they don't agree with it. They don't get it. Listen, let me remind you, there are people here who've been in church who wouldn't disagree with the message, but they'll say a lot of the same things. I hear pastor talk about this and how to find a mate God's way and how to do this and how to, and I just don't get it. Well, the fact that you don't get it doesn't mean it's not to be gotten. The fact that you don't understand God doesn't mean he doesn't make sense. The fact that you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And the fact that many people say, well, this matter of submission is kind of old-fashioned. Yeah, so is breathing. <laughs> the word translated that we find submit, subject, verse number one, it, it, it's a military term that means to place under rank. And someone says that it's getting worse moment by moment that he's talking about this. But the truth is God has a place for everything and he's ordained leadership at various levels. Again, chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, we saw that. And he has ordained the husband to be the head of the home. Ephesians 5 and verse 21 and following verses tells us that. 
And that as the husband submits to Christ, the wife should also submit to the husband. Listen, headship is not dictatorship. It's the loving exercise of divine authority under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me say some of the greatest hypocrites are men that will demand that their wives would submit to them when they refuse to submit to God's ordained authority in their life. Peter gave some reasons here and why a wife should submit in verse number one, because there's an obligation there. Jesus Christ himself submitted. And so there's nothing degrading about submitting to God's leadership. And ultimately, that's what that's about. See, submission, wives, submission is trusting God to submit to the husband in your life. What does that mean? That means you duck and let God deal with your husband. That's what submission is. It's trusting God that the one that God's placed over me, I will submit to a law enforcement officer, not because they're always bigger and stronger. Not all of them look like Larry Mooney because not all of them are. There might be some that are feeble and frail and, and, uh, and I don't submit because of how strong they might be. I submit because they have a badge that says there's authority given to them and so I, I submit. Because you trust them, I don't know them. But I trust God who placed them in my life and I can submit. It's not degrading. Jesus, again, submitted. There's an obligation to submit. But there's also, he talks about in verse 1 and 2, an opportunity of submission. What's the opportunity here? To influence a husband who may not be a believer. Who may not be uh, uh, right with the Lord. Who may not know the Lord. And then he talks about verse 3 through 6 that it's an ornament. Submission is kind of a jewelry. That can be worn. So let me walk through this with God's help this morning. Verses 1 through 6. There's seven verses we read this morning. Verses 1 through 6 speak to wives. I want you to see, first of all, wise counsel to wives. Wise counsel to wives. Again, the first six verses of our passage refer to wives. And the seventh, just one verse speaks to the husband. Now, it may seem strange that Peter's advice takes six times as long to speak to the wives as it does the husband. But I think what Peter's doing here is he's trying to help the wife because of the difficult position she's in. In this economy 2,000 years ago, if a husband became a Christian, he brought his wife and family to church whether they wanted to or not. But if a wife got saved, she can't make her family. She couldn't make her husband. And so Peter's trying to help in light of the whole book. She can have confidence in God and follow Jesus' example. And this is how you see God work. I find no fewer than three implied imperatives woven into the fabric of these six verses. They're reasonable. Ladies, they are. They're doable. They are not culturally relevant, I will tell you that. But they're God's commands and they work. So verses 1 through 2, analyze your actions, ladies. 
verses one through two, analyze your actions. See, many wives view their roles as conditional. I'll be the kind of wife I should be if he's the kind of husband he should be. After all, he's the leader. Now on the surface, that sounds legitimate. And turnabout is fair play. But there's one great problem with that concept. And that is this passage is not written just for wives with husbands who play fair. This passage is written to wives whose husbands are not playing fair. This passage is written to wives, even those whose husbands are described as those who obey not the word is what it says in verse 1. In fact, by implication, this is directed to women whose wives, uh, who are wives who are married to unsaved husbands. This can be uh, help to wives whose, um, whose husbands are saved, but they're far from God. This can even be helpful for wives who are married to um, husbands who claim to be a Christian, but are not acting like it. And this can even be helpful for Christian women who are not married. And so Peter considers the wife's role of submission to be extremely important. Disobedient husbands are going their own way. Husbands who care very little about the things of God. Husbands who would mock the things of God. In other words, these are husbands who are not measuring up to God's standard. And Peter says, wives, you can be filled with hope, but you need to analyze your actions. Uh, Having... To exhibit godly behavior under a circumstance like that with that kind of a husband in a home like that would cause many wives to substitute secret manipulation instead of what God calls for and that is a quiet spirit. Many, a woman has been effective using manipulation. But it's a form of falsehood, trickery, deceit, lying. In fact, all those things describe Satan himself. It may take many forms, such as pouting, sulking, scheming, bargaining, nagging, preaching, coercing, or humiliating. Wives who use this strategy, they're not trusting God. They're not trusting God to change their husbands. You see, a wife is not responsible for her husband's life. She's responsible for her life. You cannot make your husband something he's not. Only God can do that. One preacher's wife once said, it's my job to love him. It's God's job to make him good. I say that's a wonderful philosophy for any wife to embrace. It's your job to love your husband and submit. It's God's job to change his life. And God's saying, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how. It's not going to be without you. God says, I'm going to use you so that you can see a miracle occur. See, wives who are truly obedient to Christ will find that God will honor their secure spirit. Do you know that submission is really a mark of security and trust? It's not a spineless, 
cringing based on insecurity and fear. No, it's a voluntary unselfishness. It's a willing and cooperative spirit that seeks the highest good for one's husband. It is living like Jesus. Now, someone says, well, that sounds like a dead-end street, Pastor. Well, if you only knew what I'm living with, what a what a reprobate of a husband, what an ungodly man, what a scoundrel, what a no good husband I'm married to. But notice what Peter says again. He says in verse one, the end of the verse, that they also may without the word, without the wife actually speaking or preaching or nagging, without the word, the husband can be won by the lifestyle of the wife. While they behold... Verse 2, your chaste conversation lifestyle coupled with fear. See, the Greek term for behold is a keen, careful observation. It's not a casual glance. It's not a husband saying, well, you went to church, but I can see, um, boy, really nothing's, nothing's done anything in your life. You going to church, if that didn't really do anything for you? Why should I even consider God? No, it, it's a disobedient husband who's observing his wife's godly behavior. His heart will eventually soften towards spiritual things. And such a lifestyle has been called the silent preaching of a lovely life. So he says, analyze your actions here. And then Watch your adornment and your attitude, verses 3 and 4. He says, who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now he's drawing a sharp contrast. He's drawing a sharp contrast between your outside Look and your inner beauty. He's drawing a contrast by what you put your, where you put your time and emphasis, what you're trying to make look better, the outside or the inside. Now, in our society, it's an easy society to shop till you drop kind of a culture. You can get carried away with all kinds of externals. Our stores, our advertisements, online shopping, infomercials, entire television shows, social media channels devoted to shopping to make your outward look better. Now, he's not trying to, he's not saying you can't dress up, you can't look nice, you can't do your hair nice or wear jewelry. He's not prohibiting any of that. He's just wanting to strike a balance here. He wants to put those things in the background and bring the woman's character into the foreground. In other words, he's saying perspective is key. So taken to an unrealistic extreme, you can miss the mark in the external adornment. There are some churches where they will talk more about what, what she wore and what she had on and what she did and versus what Peter's saying, well, what about on the inside? This is what God has in mind. I've seen some women who think it's a mark of spirituality to look like an unmade bed. And that's not what God wants either. He's not saying you neglect it, as one man said, if the barn needs painting, paint it. And they're not saying don't tend to the outside, but he's saying how much emphasis are you putting on the inside? If externals get overemphasized, appearance, cosmetics, clothing, 
well, they'll take on more significance than they should have. You can become preoccupied with your external dressing, with your external adornment, and you begin judging yourself and others solely by appearance, which is exactly what our culture does. But what Peter and what, what, what the Bible says in many places, it teaches that external beauty is temporary. Internal beauty is eternal. External beauty is attractive to the world, but internal beauty is pleasing to God. And so in verse 4, Peter describes this inner beauty as a meek and quiet spirit. What is it? It's a, it's a gentle tranquility. It's a gentle tranquility. See, without question, this is every godly woman's most powerful quality and true character. Again, if you're judging the Bible based upon your understanding of your environment, you've got it backwards. You need to look at your environment through the lens of God's Word. God's Word is relevant still for today. This kind of a character of a gentle tranquility, and by the way, this does not mean it doesn't apply to a man. In this passage, it applies to the wife. Paul talks to Timothy and says this is a quality that is needed for every pastor and every deacon and every man. But see, God values this inner beauty so much so, notice what he says about it in verse number four, at the end of the verse, which is in the sight of God of, what's the next two words? Do you know that that's the same, the Greek word there that's translated great price is translated over in chapter one as precious when it talks about the blood of Jesus. Same word. It may take you a few hours to prepare yourself for the most elegant of evenings, but it takes a lifetime to prepare and develop the hidden person of the heart. Adornment is essential, but not nearly as important as our attitude. If the inner attitude is right, it's amazing how much less significant one's external appearance becomes. Wise is the wife who watches, certainly, how she looks on the outside God doesn't minimize it. In fact, chapter number one talks about fashioning the clothes you wear. It ought to reflect the heart. In fact, it does. When people step away from here, sometimes they're caught in public and they are reflecting what's really in their heart. And that is they've minimized the inner beauty that God's calling for. Third thought under this to the wives in verse 5 and 6, he says, evaluate your attention. Evaluate your attention. Where are you putting your attention, wives? Verse 5, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. What did she call her husband Abraham? She called him Lord, Master, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So evaluate, where are you putting your attention? See, the fact that Sarah, and this is Genesis 18 and verse 12, she called her husband Lord. It reveals a lot about her perspective of their relationship. It shows that she respected him. She was attentive to his needs. She cooperated with his wishes. She adapted herself to his desires. 
Wives, are you patterning yourself after Sarah's role model? That's what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Look at where you place most of your attention. Where do you spend your time? Where is the focus of your prayer life? Is the husband at the top of your earthly list? I encourage you wives to evaluate where you place most of your attention, especially for women who are busy raising a family. It's easy to put your husband's needs on hold in the rush of caring for the constant needs of your children. Experience has taught me that this is often where a breakdown in a marital relationship begins. Listen, when God gives you children, the children do not come before each other's relationship. Peter says that Sarah submitted, obeyed Abraham. Why? Because her attention, her attention was on him. I want to thank the Lord publicly here and say that I have a Sarah. Her name is Christy. Sarah means princess, by the way. And I feel like a prince because I'm married a princess. And she makes me really feel like a king. I want to tell you everything that my wife does, I am not worthy of. I don't deserve, that's not the time to say amen there, Brother Rob. Just, just, you're, you're a half, half a thought. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not that bad, but um, no, he's exactly right. But um, because he feels the same way. Aren't you thankful that when you have a wife, you know you married much better than what you deserve. And my wife is one who's, um, who, who has, she, she has filled this passage uh, and, and, and has taken and uh, not only modeled this, but has implemented this and she has embraced it. <clears throat> I, I, I know I don't, I don't deserve that kind of a wife. And there's just things that she does. She is always uh, paying attention. She's uh, paying attention to everything. Um, how can she serve? How can she make it better? And, and, and I know, I know my wife is smart. I know my wife uh, can do most anything better than I can. I, I know that. And, and this is not about that I, that she is inferior to me. That's not what, what Paul is saying, Peter is saying, that's not what God is saying. And this has nothing, it just has to do with the roles. And both of us have to trust God for what we're called and commanded to do. My wife is, in every practical way, she teaches our children because she, she is recognizing if they're going to learn this, you'll learn it from the Bible, but you're not going to learn it from the example of our society. And so she teaches the, our children, you serve your daddy first. You, you tend to, da daddy's always first. And that's the way Christy treats me. I, no matter what time I have to, no matter what time I have to get up. If I've got to get up on, at 4.30, um, she sets her clock earlier. And she wants to be able to get the coffee ready. And she brings me coffee before I can ever get out of bed. Now, I don't ask for that. I try to sneak out of bed at times, but we've, we've had a very heated exchange because 
I failed to let her serve me coffee before I get out of bed. Before my feet hit the ground, she stands there with coffee helping. And, and there are many, many, many things like that that she does because she has an attention that's focused on God and the man that God's put in her life. And she absolutely adores me. And you say, boy, is she missing it. Well, she may be, but she has found life in God to be so much greater because this is what Jesus did. And I want to tell you, our marriage at 26 and a half years is better today than what it was first year, fifth year, 10th year, 15th year. And it just keeps getting better and better and better. I, 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 I go to bed many times at night thinking, I just don't know if it could get any better. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how hard things are on the outside. It doesn't matter how rough the day is. It doesn't matter how many people have cussed me out. It doesn't matter who says, I'm, I'm walking away from, from God. I'm walking away. It, it, all those things are hard and difficult, but it makes all the difference in the world that I have a princess who really treats me like a king. In fact, she calls, she'll tell the kids, your daddy's the king. I know I'm not. But that's what Sarah did, at least in the part that Peter's emphasizing. This is not about putting me on an ego trip. I know me well enough. Nobody knows me better outside of God than my wife. This isn't because I'm, I'm perfect. I'm not. This isn't because I'm even great. I'm not. But this is because she's embraced. This is the key. You say, I've got some questions for her. Talk to her. Go to her. What does it mean Sarah obeyed Abraham? Let me say it this way. She paid attention to him. Pay attention. Pay attention to your husband. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, but he, he doesn't pay attention to me. No, no. This is the passage where the husband doesn't care about the things of God. This is, he's talking about husbands who don't pay attention, who don't care, who don't think of God and may even be willing to mock God. He's saying, wives, this is how we're going to win him to the Lord. Number two, one verse that deals with the husband, verse seven. Likewise. Now remember, verse one started with likewise. What is he saying? Likewise, he's referring to as Jesus submitted. Now, wives, you can do what Jesus did. Why? Because this is what Jesus says to do and Jesus will help you do it. Verse seven, likewise. Well, here he's saying, just as the wives have a role and responsibility, now you husbands. And he's not referring to the same husbands who are lost, but now he's talking about husbands sitting there in the congregation who heard Peter address the wives. Now he's saying, now you husbands. So he gives number two, strong commands to the husband. In this final verse, he turns the spotlight on them. And it's, it's short, but it's penetrating. It's packed with three strong imperatives. Notice verse number seven. Let me give you the three and then we'll work through it real fast. Likewise, ye husbands, first imperative, dwell. Dwell with them. That is, live with your wife. Number two, according to knowledge, know your wife. 
Number three, give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. So number one, live with your wife. Now this is, has to do with physical. He's dealing with the husband's command in a physical, in an emotional, and in a spiritual way. So here it's physical. Live with your wife. Dwell with means to live together. Someone said, well, that's very simple. You get married, we should live together. Well, it's more than just being under the same roof. You say, I, I, I'm, I live with my wife, I'm married to her, and some of you think, well, that's part of the problem. Well, that's not the problem. What Peter's talking about is a close togetherness. It suggests more than merely living together in the same home. It refers to a depth, a sense of intimacy. He's saying that husbands are responsible in the physical realm. Providing a good living should never substitute for sharing deeply in life. The husband needs to be at home with his wife. Understanding every room in a wife's heart and being sensitive to her needs. Regardless of what stage of life you're in. Dwelling together definitely means more than eating at the same table, sharing the same bed, paying for the same mortgage. It means an intimacy and even in a physical realm. But number two, he says, know your wife. Dwell with them according to knowledge. This is intellectual. Peter exhorts husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Somebody asked Mrs. Albert Einstein, if she understood Dr. Einstein's theory of relativity. And she said, no, but I understand the doctor. See, in premarital counseling, I have sometimes asked the couple to write down three things. Each one thinks the other one enjoys doing the most. Because they think they know each other so well. Usually the prospective bride makes her list immediately and the man sits and ponders. And usually the girl's right, and usually the man ends up wrong. And I think, what a beginning to a marriage. And that's what I'm trying to get him to see. According to knowledge, he says, dwell with your wife intellectually according to knowledge. In other words, it's not an academic knowledge. But it's a thorough understanding of how your wife is put together. You say, oh, I, I know my wife. Brown hair, blue eyes, weight, height. I know what she likes for supper. I know her favorite color. I know where she likes to go for dinner. Oh, I know my wife. No, no, it's not that kind of knowledge either. In fact, any man can find out that information. I could find that information out about any woman in here. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that your wife is a unique vessel. Your wife. Carefully crafted beautifully interwoven by her creator. To know your wife means you know the answers to those complex questions about her. What is her innermost makeup? What are her deepest concerns and fears? How do you help her work through them in the safety and security of your love? What does she need from you? Why does she respond as she does? There's no handbook for those insights in life. Even your father-in-law can't give you this kind of insight 
information. You have to find it out in the intimacy of marriage and in cultivating your life together. It takes time. And you single men, don't expect that you're ready for marriage if you're not cultivating your relationship with God as it ought to be. It is God who created you. It is God who created her. It's God who created marriage. And the way you're to succeed in marriage, Peter is getting across, is by that inner man, wife. The husband needs to see what he can't see with his eyes, the inner man. Husband, your wife needs you to be in tune with God in the inner man. And so every single young man thinks they're ready for marriage simply because, well, you know, we know some things. I know some things. No, you don't know until you have submitted and surrendered to knowing God. It takes time. It takes listening. It takes paying attention, concentrating, praying for insight, seeking understanding. Many a lady has gone through that stage and phase in life and the, the change of life. And many marriage has been hurt and crippled because a husband didn't understand how to dwell with his wife according to knowledge. And many wives didn't understand themselves. And because of battling these things, and husbands have just given their wife space and room. And they've neglected their responsibility. It's incredible that two married people can live together and never really know each other. Ignorance is dangerous, dangerous in any area of life, but it's extremely dangerous in marriage. A Christian husband must know his wife's moods, feelings, needs, fears, and hopes. He has to listen with his heart and share meaningful communication with her. Every husband is preparing his wife to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew Henry puts it, Husbands are to live with the wife according to knowledge, not according to lust, as brutes, not according to passion, as devils, but according to knowledge, as wise and sober men who know the word of God and their own duty. I want to say, men, most wives long for that. And some wives die longing for it. Few things give a woman more security than knowing that her husband really knows her. I failed in this area for many, many years. A lot of it was due to the fact that my wife is very strong. She's not insecure. I know some ladies would have a hard time with my being around my wife because of many women's insecurities. And an insecure woman has a hard time being around a secure woman. And I would have a hard time thinking my wife has any fear, has any struggle. And there were things on the inside of her that I never knew because on the outside, she will make things work. She's going to, she's, she's, you, you got to go on. You've got to press on. You, know, you can't just have a call-in sick day once a week because I just don't feel, I just, just feel like sitting on the couch today. I feel bad, feel gloomy, feel down and, and come up with medical reasons in the history of your family why you can. I'm telling you, you're suffering and people around you are suffering. And so my wife just never had that mindset. She had a mom that worked harder than most women will ever work. And so she had a mindset for that. And I missed the fact that on the inside, she still had needs. And I did not stare and behold and try to understand. 
Few things will give a woman more security than a husband who knows her. And by the way, that's what results in intimacy. That's what turns romance into a deep, lifelong love. That's what keeps her focused and committed on her husband, longing to have you there, delighted in your presence, your words, and your listening ear. Now, let me address this because some, some may misunderstand. When he talks about verse 7, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. There's nothing here that has to do, he's not talking about the wife being a weaker vessel based upon her character or her intelligence or her spirituality or morally or intellectually. It simply means that the woman has less physical strength. It's just the way God has made her. That is what God has done. Now, the husband must recognize this difference, take it into account. And this is difficult also to comprehend because when we think about various things, we recognize our wives are pretty strong. All I have to do is mention childbearing and, and everyone should understand, yeah, they're pretty strong. But still, there's no doubt that the kind of strength that women have within them to endure that kind of pain is an incredible strength. But when it comes to actual physical strength in spite of our confused and corrupt society, Dr. Robert Curlin, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist, he says, if the battle of the sexes was reduced to a tug of war with a line <coughs> of 100 men on one side of the trench, 100 men on the other, women on the other side, the men would win. What makes the difference? He says, just the, the muscular makeup. It's just the nature of it. And God's goal for us as husbands is just to be sensitive rather than to prove how strong and macho we are. By the way, if you have to tell your wife you're in charge, you're the head, the truth is you're not acting like it. We need to love our wives, listen to them, adapt to their needs. We need to say uh, no to more and more in our work so we can say yes more and more in our homes. We can say yes to the needs of our children and our families. How else will your children learn what it means to be a good husband and a good father? By the way, the best thing, fathers, you can give your child is for them to see how much you love their mama. That's what they need. Now, this is not to be a smothering kind of attention. That's not it. it the kind that says a husband is so insecure he cannot let his wife out of his sight. That's not what it is. Instead, this is a kind of love that means your wife can't get back to you fast enough because of how much you missed her and how much you love her. Which brings me to the third imperative. Got to hurry. Verse 7. Can you hang on just a little bit longer, ladies? Let me hit this one. Unless, ladies, you want me to cut it short. I can cut it short and jip your husband. All right, thank you. I was waiting for just some, some confirmation there. Um, he says honor. He says, verse 7, dwell with them. That's a physical Dwell with them according to knowledge. Number two, that's an intellectual. No, you've got to know, no matter what stage of life she's in, number three, give honor. Honor your wife. That's emotional. Honor your wife. Chivalry may be dead, but every husband must be a knight in shining armor who treats his wife like a princess. And I've already told you Sarah means princess. Peter did not suggest that a wife is the weaker vessel, as I've already mentioned Mentally, morally, spiritually, but rather physically. Now, there are exceptions, of course. I know there are exceptions. But generally speaking, the man is stronger 
of the two when it comes to physical accomplishments. And the husband should treat his wife like an expensive, beautiful, fragile, precious treasure. When a young couple starts dating, the boy's courteous and thoughtful. After they get engaged, he shows even more courtesy, acts like a gentleman. But sad to say, soon after they get married, many husbands forget to be the kind of gentlemen that their wives need, and they take their wives for granted. He forgets that happiness in a home is made up of many little things, including the small courtesies of life. Big resentments begin to grow out of small hurts. Giving honor to the wife doesn't mean giving in to the wife. A husband can disagree with his wife and still respect her and honor her. As the spiritual leader in the home, the husband must sometimes make decisions. They're not popular, but you can still act with courtesy and respect. Giving honor means that the husband respects, respects, respects his wife's feelings and thoughts and desires. He may not agree with her ideas, but he respects them. And I respect my wife, even if I may not agree. She knows I, I tend to agree with hers more than I agree with mine. But even if I have to make a decision contrary to what she thinks, I can still honor her and respect her. And often God balances a marriage so that the husband needs what the wife has in her personality. And she likewise needs his good qualities. Listen, an impulsive husband often has a patient wife, which keeps him out of trouble. Many times in a marriage, you've got one that is the spender. And you've got one who's the saver. And that's good. That's a help. The husband must be the thermostat, setting the emotional and spiritual temperature. But the wife is often the thermometer, letting him know what the temperature is. Both are necessary. The husband who is sensitive to his wife's feelings will not only make her happy, but will also grow himself and help his children live in a home that honors God. Honor, treat her like a very valuable, precious ornament, treasure. Let me ask you some personal questions here. Men, how do you treat your wife on an average day? Do you honor her? Do you give her a place of significance? Does she know that she is your top priority? Do you communicate that in both your actions and your words? Honoring another is, a, is never something we keep to ourselves. I, I didn't come from a home where I saw this modeled. My dad left when I was five. The last thing I ever saw my dad do was beat my mom and walk out. And I've never seen my dad since I was five. I've never heard from my dad. I have no idea if he's alive or when he died. I didn't get to see it modeled. I'll tell you, though, when I got to Bible college as a 17-year-old, I was still 17 when I, when I became a, a freshman in college and turned 18 shortly thereafter. Dr. Childs taught our Christian home class. And I watched Dr. Childs treat his wife as a very precious treasure. Dr. Childs, that was really before the days that we had cell phones. They were just coming in and and, but Dr. Childs made it known that <clears throat> my wife doesn't have to be put on hold when she's calling for me. She gets put right through. 
And he'd stop a class to take a call from his wife. He called her Tiger. That was, I thought that was her real name. I didn't know she had another name. He would always talk about Tiger. And he, he always held a door open for her, held the door open for her to get in the vehicle and out of the vehicle. And he treated her as if she was a queen because she was. And that's what Peter's talking about. I'm thankful that God doesn't give up on teaching us. Let me summarize what Peter's written. Wives, your actions, your adornment, your attitude, your attention, they're crucial in your marriage. Husbands, living with your wife and getting to know your wife, honoring your wife, this is not for courtship to get married. This is for every stage of marriage. It's imperative, and if your marriage is going to be what God says it's to be in His eyes, you need to take verse 7, and you need to love it, embrace it, and pray it to be a reality. Now let me give you this third one, and i got to be done. Verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife and to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I have a third point, and that is a promise to both partners. He gives a promise. But I want to say it ultimately is a promise to the husband. I don't even, I don't even know that I agree with what I wrote there. The promise in verse 7 is, I believe, to the husband. And that is, husbands, if you do not dwell with your wife physically and honor them with an intellectual understanding and knowing them and giving honor emotionally unto your wife, according to verse 7, your prayers will not be answered. Do you know what that means? It means if I'm not right with my wife, I cannot be right with God. What that means is if there's something broken in my marriage, it will affect Canaan Baptist Church. But do you know that if things are right between my wife and I, everyone else is the benefactor. But this is not ultimately about us having a happy marriage and everyone else being healthy around us. It's about my relationship with God being free and clear. Don't you want to have a happy marriage? Don't you want to have a happy relationship with God? Then let's focus where he focuses. Let's stand together, please.